At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. Now my guest tonight is someone that most of you probably won't have heard of. He's Professor Paul Glue, who's Professor in Dunedin, which is the most southerly university in the world, right on the tip of New Zealand, poking into the Antarctic. And he's sitting in his house now, hoping that the winter storm is driving through won't submerge him in snow. Now, you won't have heard of Paul Glue, but you should have done, because Paul was one of the pioneers of research on ketamine. And that's why I've invited him to come onto this podcast, because he did some of the first work using ketamine back in Britain, back in the 1980s, and has continued to work in that field. And also, he's also the world expert on Ibogaine. So, Paul, welcome to the Drug Science Podcast. David, thanks for the invitation. So, Paul, I'd like people to tell us a little bit about their background. And obviously, you're a New Zealander, but and then you came to Britain. Do you want to tell people a little bit about, and then you've been to America as well. Tell us a bit about your background so we can get a sense of who you are. Well, look, it's this complex, intertwined relationship with you, David. So in the early 80s, 83, I enrolled as a registrar at the University of Oxford and got started in the training scheme there. And I think on my second week, I met this very enthusiastic senior registrar called David Nutt, who was convincing me to do some research. And eventually we settled on looking at alcoholics and withdrawal. There'd been very little research trying to understand what drove the symptoms of alcohol withdrawal and what the link between heavy drinking and changes in brain pharmacology might represent. That's right, I remember that for. Yeah, and in fact, you wrote the definitive, the absolutely definitive review on, on the neurochemistry of alcoholism, didn't you? Which uh, yeah. still stands the test of time today. Well, yes, I remember. It's, I'd add in probably a little bit more about the glutamate system, but yeah, I think for what we knew in the late 80s, it stood up pretty well. Yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, and you started working on a new treatment for alcohol withdrawal, didn't you? Was it clonidine? It was clonidine, yeah. So there'd been some case reports, but clonidine was a fantastic tool not just to reduce alcohol withdrawal symptoms, but also to look at alpha-2 adrenosensitivity but by looking at, say, changes in temperature and growth hormone and blood pressure and things. And basically, by the time you've got to withdrawal state, you've really switched off a lot of your inhibitory control over your noradrenergic system. Oh, so you're in noradrenergic storm in withdrawal. Absolutely. You've switched off all the inhibitory systems, what you've done, tuned them, and all your arousal systems, and that include GABA as, sorry, glutamate as well as the adrenergic system, are just raging away. And that's that's what causes the, the sort of sympathetic overactivity and, and seizures seen in severe withdrawal. Then you, you came to the States as well, didn't you? You started doing some work over there at NIH. Yeah, so it, and after I'd finished my membership, my mum had got sick, and so I came back to New Zealand for a year to look after her, and then wound up at, at 
NIAAA and the one of the lab chiefs was... Better explain to people what NIAAA is, Paul. At National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. And it's one of the smaller institutes in this big panoply of institutes. So National Institute of Mental Health is very closely linked with it, but they're, they're quite separate. There's a National Institute of Drug Abuse. NIAAA is relatively small, but because of the shared lab system in the Building 13, the main building on the campus, it was very easy to find space in other people's labs. And if you had a a technique that you could show people how to use or or train people up, they were only too willing to provide bench space. And I learned how to make microdialysis probes in the mid-80s in Queen Square in London. And no, they weren't commercially available yet, so suddenly I spend a day a week making microdialysis probes, and I'd have lots of bench space over in other people's labs for the rest of the week. It was wonderful. No, actually, people again may not completely understand microdialysis. You want to just briefly explain? So this is very old school, guys. It was very happening in the in the mid eighties. It's making a tiny little probe, maybe a diameter of one or two millimeters, and within that probe you have a very, very fine tube that pumps ringer solution down to a dialysis membrane. And then there's a second very fine tube that allows that ringer's solution to come out and be analyzed. And what's happening is the dialysis membrane and part of the tube are, are placed into brain structures. So the striatum or the prefrontal cortex or whatever. And it allows you to record extrasynaptic concentrations of neurotransmitters, basically as they're occurring. So if animals are anesthetized, you can dose them with drugs. In my case, I was looking at the effect of seizures to try and figure out what ECT was doing to monoamines. And you can measure them in in an HPLC. And in a slightly fancier version of this, you can implant animals and have them with a, have them running around a cage and do behavioral experiments with them and look at neurotransmitter release under those circumstances. So incredibly powerful technique very old school now, but going back 35 years, that was where it was all happening. Well, I think, to be honest, Paul, I think the conclusions we came to and how ECT works, again, are still state-of-the-art today. We think, uh, in a way, we understood that. People often say, oh, ECT, it's just like hitting the TV with a hammer, isn't it? But in fact, we showed, or you showed, that there was more specificity ECT than antidepressants. Again, looking at it now with the benefit of 35 years of hindsight, if we'd looked at, say, BDNF levels or taken some tissue from animals' heads and looked at production of dendrites, perhaps looked blood flow studies, I think there'd been more sophisticated ways of understanding what ECT is doing at a molecular or a cellular level. But yeah, for the, for the tools we had at the time, and this was also a world that was very focused on monoamines, that... I guess it was as good as we could have achieved at the time. No, absolutely. And the sequential recruitment of different neurotransmitters with ECT, you know, starting with dopamine and then subsequently noradrenaline and then subsequently serotonin, I still think is probably the best explanation we have of the time sequence of ECT today. Mm-hmm. And that's right. Over the space of a couple of weeks, there were progressive changes, both in terms of baseline transmitter levels as well as responsiveness. For any of you listening to this who are interested, this came out in, I think, psychopharmacology in 1989, so it's a good if historical read. And then we both moved back to Bristol 
And at Bristol yep. University, there was the MRC unit run by um, Graham Collingridge, who just worked out, I think, just worked out kind of the, that NMDA was a, receptor, a glutamate receptor. It was the NMDA glutamate receptor. And you got interested in probing it, didn't you? In fact, you wrote a paper about NMDA receptors and alcoholism, I think, back in about 89. Yeah. And again, it was it's remarkable to think just how massively the field has come on in terms of understanding receptor function and diversity and the complex feedback mechanisms that are available. And again, most of the work I was doing over in Bristol, though, was clinical. And I think we did some just thinking, sort of moving on to a slightly different topic. If you remember the flumazenil work we did in patients with a panic disorder. Oh, right. Yes, yes. The GABA system becoming, yeah, I think that was the interesting thing, wasn't it, Paul, that we began to realise that actually glutamate and GABA potentially more important or at least as important as the amines. And you were working with the GABA system of flumazenil and, and then I think it, it was you that actually wrote the, I think you probably did the first ketamine challenge studies in the world, at least in psychiatry, the study of the NMDA system. There are actually some other older studies. There's a beautiful study from a group in Cambridge with anorexics. This is going back to 98, where they showed quite convincingly that ketamine improved mood symptoms or ketamine plus naloxone improved mood symptoms in anorexics. And then very gradually, weight gain occurred over the next few weeks. And uh, Rupert McShane in Oxford has a, a case series showing basically that. So there's some you know, beautiful if older data. Look, David, I wouldn't put my hand on my heart and say I was there at the beginning. I remember driving you to places where you were injecting people with ketamine and looking at eye movement velocity to look at the sensitivity of the glutamate system. Oh, okay, this is the saccadic eye movement stuff. Yeah, this is looking at saccadic eye movements. So these are very rapid conjugate eye movements. In this case, we were looking at horizontal saccades in response to drug treatment and trying to look at what sped up and slowed down eye movements. And it's it's quite a nice psychomotor test if one's looking at things like benzos or alcohol. The fault of the system seems to be set really high, so it's it's really tough to speed up eye movement. It's not you could smoke a bunch of methamphetamine and, and suddenly have, you know, twice as fast saccades. But yeah, you know, look <laughs> Dave, I wouldn't hold that work up as being that pioneering. Well I thought it was pioneering. You're humble, Paul. No, look, the, the hat goes off to John Crystal and the work he was doing in the early 90s at Yale, looking at ketamine and its potentially, I guess, psychotogenic effects in healthy volunteers. And he was the one who popularized the idea of a half milligram per kilogram infusion of ketamine, which has really been the the most commonly used method today, not that it's necessarily the best route of administration or the the ideal dose, but he's had an undue influence on this field. And he was one of the senior authors on the the 2000 Berman paper, which reported the seven or eight patients with treatment-resistant depression had a, a lovely rapid improvement in their mood symptoms after an infusion of ketamine. Yes, then you went off to work for Pfizer and you became the head of clinical pharmacology, I think, in Pfizer. And the world's Expert psychopharmacologist. <laughs> so three three places. So Shearing Plough, ah. Novartis, and Pfizer. Oh, right. And it's like the the best university you could ever have if you wanted to learn translational medicine or clinical pharmacology. As long as your project is being funded, you've got essentially unlimited resources to run studies, 
look at interesting aspects around those studies. And obviously, it works out commercially for the company driving it. And to my eternal shame, I've never been able to develop a psychiatric drug. So I worked on lots. We got some approved hepatitis C and HIV products. Fingolimod at Novartis, I was on the patent for that for as an oral treatment for MS, other bits and pieces, but never anything that started out life as a psychiatric drug. It's not, it's not too late because you <laughs> <laughs> well the the challenge is is that animal models are so lousy for psychiatry that if you're looking to treat a bug you can grow it in a petri dish and apply drugs to it they've got good animal models for say pain and epilepsy but nothing for say depression anxiety schizophrenia and and that's why Really, all the drugs that we have for psychiatry at the moment either repurpose drugs or ones that have been found by dumb luck. So, Paul, having uh, gone to the other side into the pharma industry, you then back into academia. You went back to your alma mater in Dunedin and became professor of psychiatry. Yes. And start work on ketamine again. Is that right? That is correct. So during my time in the States, I'd still been doing teaching at New Jersey Medical School. And... When I came back to New Zealand, there weren't any problems going back into a joint clinical and academic job. So the the clinical job for almost all my time here has been running an acute inpatient unit. And most of the patients I see have refractory depression, anxiety. There are lots of crises and borderline patients as well. But it's an ideal substrate for looking at people with refractory depression and anxiety disorders. And the, the academic work is... It's essentially blue skies if I'd wanted to work on rating scales or philosophical pieces that would also be acceptable to the university. But I'm blessed having a large building with a a series of clinic rooms, so it's ideal for, for doing testing. And then finally, there are spectacular people to collaborate with in, in psychology and pharmacy and anatomy. So it's been a wonderful opportunity to harness the skill and knowledge that these collaborators have as well yeah and so you've um, done quite well some very innovative work with ketamine and there are two things in particular I mean I think you validated or you proved that it did have antidepressant effects rapid antidepressant effects but you've also developed a new form of ketamine is that right oral ketamine yeah so one of the challenges with ketamine is that if it's infused if it's injected into the muscle or under the skin it produces a lot of dissociation and blood pressure can shoot up for maybe the first half hour or so. And the dissociative effects due to the NMDA, the glutamate blocking effects, just having a a broad general disruptive effect across the cortex. The blood pressure effects are due to a sympathomimetic reaction to this. So blood pressure goes up, heart rate goes up. And generally, this is all finished by about half an hour, three quarters of an hour after dosing. And for people who've got very high or unstable blood pressure or maybe are at risk of having a stroke, you really don't want to be dosing them with ketamine if it's producing that sort of effect. And we wondered also if ketamine actually needed to be given parenterally. So there seems to be a strong belief, even up till now, that the important thing is getting parent ketamine on board rather than any of its metabolites. And that really flies in the face of a couple of important findings. So the first was in 2014 from an American group who showed that norketamine, so the the first metabolite of ketamine, actually is much more potent at 
phosphorylating a, a key regulatory enzyme, the target of rapamycin, than ketamine itself. And then Zanus at Amoadel at, at the University of Maryland and Carlos Zarati at NIMH have subsequently published on even later metabolites, especially hydronorketamine being likely to be even more active than ketamine itself. So in that sense, ketamine is just acting as a prodrug. And one of the ways of trying to minimize the amount of ketamine actually appearing in the circulation was to develop a slow-release tablet. And this is work in collaboration with Douglas Pharmaceuticals, who are a private company up in Auckland. The idea there was, could we make a, a tablet that releases over, say, eight to 10 hours? And they came up with a really clever idea of mixing together a powder called polyethylene oxide along with ketamine and then baking it at around 80 degrees for a few minutes. And what comes out is basically a little rock. You can beat it with a hammer and eventually it will deform, but it, it can't be crushed into powder. Oh, so it can't be snorted and abused. It's very, very difficult to abuse. So the polyethylene oxide is hydri- highly hydrophilic. So once this little rock is floating through your system, it's actively encouraging water molecules to bind to it. And as it binds, the polyethylene oxide sort of very slowly melts away and the ketamine is released. So it works beautifully on two levels. Firstly, the the slow release aspects of it. And secondly, it puts up a barrier to abusability. And so we've had thoughts about, well, how could you abuse this? What if you took a, a little drill or sandpaper to it to try and turn this plastic into a powder? As soon as you mix anything aqueous with it, it turns into a, a mucusy-like material. It's I can't imagine one would want to, say, try and inject this or snort it. You're turning a kind of a ketamine theory on its head, Paul, because there is a, I think, the majority of the people who are ketamine users would think it's the psychedelic effect of disruption, you know, this, the dissociation, the, the perturbing the brain that is... The anti drives the antidepressant effect, but you're saying no. It's you're saying it's either ketamine or some metabolite, which is somehow resetting things in a more gentle way. Is, is that your theory? Well, let me just talk you through some of the published results we've got. So, yeah, we've done we published a healthy volunteer study with rising doses and a a very small study in patients, and essentially one can get an improvement in mood within about. 48 to 72 hours without any dissociation whatsoever and no change in blood pressure. And the sorts of doses we're looking at in the first week along the lines of 120 milligrams a day for five days. And then subsequently, my guess is, because this is blinded, somewhere between 120 to 180 twice weekly will keep people well. So just figuring out how to dose the drug is, to me, is critical. But because this is something that is a tablet, is non-abusable, could be taken at home. You've actually got the possibility of moving treatment out of the clinic and into, you know, back into people's bathrooms. So that actually is really reducing the cost because, of course, we're discovering many countries in which S-ketamine has been licensed, the nasal enantiomer, and, of course, where intravenous ketamine is used. You do have a lot of associated costs relating to staff and, and you know, places to, to administer, don't you? So you could you could actually significantly reduce the cost of ketamine administration by using your oral form. Yeah, and look, that's one of the possibilities, that it just makes it the whole thing easier to administer 
both from a clinic perspective and a, a patient perspective. The tolerability improvement is definitely a bonus as well. And yes. the, I guess the third thing that we're finding, we've just finished enrollment of a phase two trial. And from the people that we've had at our site who've gone through that in an open label extension, what we're finding is maybe a third to a half of people will need long-term treatment with this, that they can stay well on treatment twice or three times a week, but they, as soon as one stop or a couple of weeks after stopping the, the tablets, there will be a recurrence of symptoms and you can treat that recurrence of symptoms by restarting the tablets. So again, I think that although the focus has been on acute treatment and certainly the two Janssen registrations for Spravato have focused on this, to me, the much bigger question is where is this, you know, how are patients actually going to get treated? And I suspect that for, you know, perhaps at least a third that will be maintenance treatment and it's it's figuring out how to manage that. And I think if you if you need two hours in the clinic each time, twice a week to manage that, you've got a very complicated drug, very expensive drug to try and administer. Well, that's fascinating. And I guess because you're only giving it twice a week, you're not getting tolerance because there's always been this concern that if you take ketamine regularly, daily, you'll get tolerance and then you'll build up the dose and then you'll get all the noxious complications, particularly the bladder problems. But by giving it as intermittently as you do, you're presumably free of those bladder complications, are you? Yeah, we haven't seen any bladder complications, any uh, cognitive symptoms. So, now, Dave, you'd mentioned before about dissociation, and I know that we're jumping around here, but let me go back to that. Yes, please. So I agree that the getting a, an improvement in mood without a, any episodes of dissociation does seem to throw the dissociation theory on its head. I am impressed, though, with the, say, the psilocybin and MDMA work that's come up, which has linked use of medication with intensive pre, peri and post dosing psychotherapy. And Phil Wolfson has published a bit on KAP, ketamine assisted psychotherapy. And I think he makes a very good point about the benefits of combining medication and he's given ketamine in, in a number of different ways plus different forms of psychotherapy. I wonder if ketamine were used in such a situation if it might have a more enduring effect. Well I think you're probably right yeah I think we should be trying to optimize all these our interventions with appropriate psychotherapy. Frankly even ordinary antidepressants do better if you give that. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing about Wilson's work is, is none of it's placebo-controlled or any sort of control. So again, I think it's really essential that to try and optimize or help clinicians make good decisions is to throw in some controlled trials early on in the development process. And you've done that. So you've done your, or in the process of completing a controlled trial of your, your ketamine pellet versus a not a placebo. Is that right? So it's a, it's a design where for the first week we take patients with MADRA scores of 20 or higher so that's Montgomery Osberg depression rating scales, yes? Thank you. Sorry to keep throwing acronyms in there. So being at least moderately depressed, and th these are people who failed at least a couple of courses of antidepressants and a course of psychotherapies, so pretty standard FDA-type treatment resistance definitions. And for the first week, everyone gets open-label ketamine 120 milligrams a day. And the on day eight, we look to see who's got a a Madras 
depression score of 12 or less. So essentially what's happened is they've gone from being at least moderately depressed down to having minimal depressive symptoms. And we found that was about 75% of people achieved that, and most within 48, 72 hours. A couple of the collaborating centres in Australia had mentioned, because they're starting with patients who may have quite a lot higher baseline depression scores, that perhaps treating them for 10 days or 12 days might even get a bigger proportion of people coming through. But then the, the second part of the study, once people have achieved this depression score, is to randomize them to a range of different doses of ketamine tablets. So either 0, 30, 60, 120 or 180 milligrams twice weekly for up to three months. And so this is a a big element of dose finding in this, that if the study outcome is positive, it would also mean that one would have a high level of confidence in taking one or two doses further into, into a phase three program. So is this being developed by your uh, the company in New Zealand, or is this? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is Douglas Pharmaceuticals. And again, we should get a readout on this towards the end of this year, probably fourth quarter. So if it is positive, it will be coming to a, a good journal somewhere near you. So that's, this was New Zealand's first ever homegrown psychotropication. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, we, we have plenty of cannabis and MDMA here, but this would be the first. <laughs> oh, well, congratulations. I think that's very, very exciting, actually. Yeah, it's, uh, and you are challenging some of the current theories. I mean, I don't know. Do you think this oral dosing will do like the IV and release BDNF, et cetera? Have you got any, any pointers there? So BDNF, I think, has been a bust in terms of a peripheral biomarker from about 2013 onwards. We'd read, I think it was a paper coming out of a U.S., the New York City group, who correlated changes in BDNF with changes in depression scores and thought, wow, this is it. We've got a peripheral biomarker. We've now published, I think, four or five papers on BDNF levels. And whatever they're doing in brain, they're not doing in plasma. Right. I should say BDNF stands for brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is one of the key hormones. It maintains what you might call normal functioning of brain neurons. And there's a theory that it's depleted in depression and that drugs like ketamine enhance it. And that may be how they actually produce their effects in the brain. But that's still to be proven is what you're saying. Yeah. It's, so I think the work that's been done uh, looking at this and, and the, the first publications are from 2010 are very convincing. And there does seem to be high levels of consistency. Multiple labs have found the same bindings and expanded on the original observations, I have no doubt that this is an important mechanism. I'm also aware that there are so many mechanisms that have been proposed for what ketamine's doing. I think Zanos from the University of Maryland published a paper a couple of years ago where it's 18 pages of dense script looking at purely pharmacological mechanisms. And, and at the end of it, he says, we haven't even touched things like immune-modulating effects of ketamine. So the amount of ink that will be spilt over this one will be vast. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's a very important concept. But let's park ketamine for a bit because you've also moved into an even more controversial area, which is Ibogaine. So, so tell me a bit about why you started to explore that. So New Zealand has a, in 2009, there were a number of non-medical practitioners who were interested in using Ibogaine to take people who were on opioids and safely detox them. And the 
the theory is that ibogaine produces a reduction in craving, a reduction in opioid withdrawal symptoms, and that people can be converted from being addicted to non-addicted much more effectively than by using alternative methods. And, and often it's, you know, it involves cold turkey with a lot of clonidine patches and loperamide. The original observation comes from a, a, a US ex-addict, um, Howard Lotsoff, who drummed up enormous amounts of enthusiasm for using ibogaine, but also rendered it undevelopable as a drug just because he'd filed patents and published papers on it. So it's, anyway, the MedSafe, the equivalent of FDA or MHRA in the UK, gazetted ibogaine and noribogaine as prescription drugs, even in the absence of a specific formulation or a data sheet, because they wanted to at least regulate the use of it to medical practitioners. And that status of being able to use it, but using it under medical supervision, meant that anyone who was interested in developing ibogaine or noribogaine would think, oh, New Zealand's a reasonable place to do yes, this. indeed. And you are the only Western country which has it as a licensed medicine or as an available, accessible medicine, I think. Available, yeah. But the, the challenge is that there don't seem to be any sources of GMP, so good manufacturing practice, uh-huh. ibogaine or noribogaine available. And for those of you who aren't familiar with drug manufacturing, GMP is a, a series of standards that anyone who wants to put a drug out for human pharmaceutical use has to meet these standards. And they're very, very high standards. So the absence of a, a usable formulation is been a real challenge to, to work in this area. But you have worked in the area because you, you've done the definitive dose-response study. I mean, uh, look, tell people about that. So there were two studies. One, we'd managed to get a gram or so of ibogaine from a, a researcher in Canada, Bob Sisko, who had a connection with a, a clinic in Canada. And we took two dozen healthy volunteers and gave half of them paroxetine and gave half of them placebo for a week. And the reason for doing this is one of the metabolites of paroxetine is a super potent inhibitor of a liver enzyme called 2D6. And so essentially what we started out with the two groups with normal activity of 2D6 and over a week we'd really sort of turned down the enzyme activity in half of them. And then we dosed them with 20 milligrams of ibogaine and the tolerability, the side effects were the same. There were no safety differences, but we saw these massive pharmacokinetic differences that in the 2D6 normal metabolizers, we saw virtually no ibogaine and huge amounts of noribogaine. So basically ibogaine was just getting immediately converted. In the people who had poor 2D6 activity, we saw enormous amounts of ibogaine and enormous amounts of noribogaine. So essentially, if you added the molar concentrations together, you're getting about twice as much exposure if your 2D6 enzyme isn't working particularly well. And the issues with ibogaine and noribogaine is that both of them bind to the inhibitory potassium channel in heart muscle tissue. And in doing so, you can prolong the QT, the corrected QT interval. So when your heart beats, when it's repolarizing, when it's getting ready to pump another load full of blood around the body, you see a the QT interval reflects that pause while the, the muscle is recharging. 
the normal duration of QT is around 350 to 450 milliseconds. Once it starts getting much longer, there's a small risk of getting serious heart arrhythmias. And we're talking things like torsades, which can be life-threatening. And in the literature, most of the most of the literature on deaths associated with use of ibogaine has been relates to heart arrhythmias or sudden death. So just being able to show that if you really want to know what someone's 2D6's activity is like, because you can do this by genotyping, or if people are on 2D6 inhibiting drugs, you could phenotype them. So, so that was one element. The second aspect was a US company based in Florida and Georgia called Demerix were very keen to develop noribogaine. And a big driver for this was, oh gosh, what's the first name? Debra Mass, yeah. Sorry, I'm just having a senior moment here. I should tell, I should, I should have. Yeah, did I say at the beginning that you got up very early in the middle of a storm? <laughs> Thanks, Dave. No, the, um, so Deborah was mad keen to get ibogaine developed and then realized that nor ibogaine, which is the active metabolite of ibogaine and which also sits around in the body for a bit longer, might be a, a good development candidate. And so she and a bunch of investors set up Demerix and they wanted to run some first in human and then first in patient studies, which they ran here in Dunedin. And in part, that was due to the, the, the favorable regulatory environment. And the healthy volunteer study, where we tested doses between 3 and 60 milligrams, was an absolute breeze. Although, so the pharmacokinetics were very predictable. There were no safety concerns. We did get a couple of surprises, though, that the pharmacology going into this was that Noribogaine was going to be a serotonergic opioid. So it binds to the, the serotonin transporter. And it was also supposed to bind to mu opiate receptors and act as, a, as an agonist, sort of morphine-like activities. And we saw neither of those. And when we then look back at the literature that was coming out, although noribogaine binds to the serotonin transporter, it binds in a different way to something like Prozac so that you're, you're left with the transporter in an open configuration. So it's not it's not going to work as an antidepressant. And when we looked at, at measures of opiate agonist biomarkers, such as pupil diameter or um, cold pressor sensitivity, no effect like that at all. And subsequently, people have said, well, actually, it's not an agonist. It's probably just a, an antagonist. So, so some of the old pharmacology is pretty dodgy. But in fact... We still have no idea how ibogaine works and why it might be useful for an addiction, do we? Or, or do you, what would your guess? So there's a 2018 paper from a group at, in California. I think the first author is, is Calvin Lee, L-Y. They've published on commonalities between psychedelics and they've also lumped ketamine and noribogaine in with them. And they're looking at BDNF transcription. They're looking at production of dendrites. Mm-hmm. Um, they're looking at a number of other biomarkers that might suggest that there are changes going on that would, I guess, normalize network activity. And so all the serotonergic psychedelics fit in that pattern. Ketamine does, even though it's not directly interacting with serotonin 2A receptors. And noribogaine does as well, but not ibogaine. So it may well be that noribogaine is the business end of the molecule. Right. And is it still being used in New Zealand for the treatment of opiate dependence, or is that just a phase? 
we had a, a very unfortunate death in Northland about five years ago. A, a local GP who was a bit of a cowboy yeah. would dose people with enormous doses, not monitor them, and I think had actually flown off to Australia to a conference when a patient he was supposed to be looking after died. So um, not surprisingly, people have got very cold feet after that. Now, I, I think the way that Ibogaine or Noribogaine can be used safely is that it's not a one-dose treatment and that actually the, I suspect the way to use it will be to do repeated dosing over perhaps a week or so. So you can get a, a total dose of a, a thousand milligrams or, or thereabouts in. Oh, like, um, on, like your ketamine model. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially you have a loading dose and a colleague in pharmacy, Natalie Medlicott, is working on a, a model for this where we've got PK data for, for, for Ibogaine and Noribogaine. We've got beautiful detailed QTC data so you can come up with a concentration QTC model. And depending on how frequently you dose people, you could say, well, let's say we dose people with 60 milligrams baseline and then 40 milligrams every six hours. That would allow you to keep your QTC change within about 20 milliseconds. So it would be a slightly more involved dosing schedule, but you could put your hand on your heart and say that the chances are that I'm not going to you know, put this patient at risk of arrhythmias. Now, whether it works to treat addiction, I have no idea but it would allow safe usage of Ibogaine or Noribogaine. Well, Paul, that sounds has an exciting development. Um, we're going to have to wind up now. We've been talking for nearly 50 minutes. Um, it's been a great pleasure talking to you because you've brought home one of the really key elements of pharmacology, which is kinetics. A lot of people ignore kinetics. They just care about what receptor the drug goes to and, and think it, it's all can be explained in terms of, say, affinity at the receptor. But in reality, uh, kinetics is a hugely critical factor in almost all the drugs we use, whether whether you use them recreationally, addictively, or as <laughs> So I want to say thank you so much for coming back home from. Thanks very much, David. It's been a great pleasure. Keep up the good work, Paul. We look forward to seeing your little ketamine pebbles in Britain at some point in the near future. Good luck to you with those trials. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, hopefully they'll remain unabusable or difficult to abuse. Have a good evening. Cheers. Good luck with the storm, Paul. Good luck. Stay safe. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thank you.